You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Today is the last day of the state's legislative session and the final session for State Senator Jay Kalani English. He announced his retirement from public office this week, citing medical issues stemming from his recovery from COVID-19. For the last 20 years, he's represented Senate District 7 on Maui, which covers Hana, East and Upcountry Maui, Moloka'i, Lanai, and Kaho'olawe. Prior to that, he served three years on the Maui County Council. The Conversations' Russell Subiano spoke with the senator about his time in office and who he thinks should replace him and if there's a comeback in his future. What led you to public office? Did you always have your sights set in politics or did you kind of find a, a different path that led you to it? My original career path really was one of um, academics and, and diplomacy. So, you know, my degrees are really obscure degrees in Pacific Island studies, my undergraduate, my graduate work. And then I did, uh, I was a fellow at the East-West Center, you know, in the Institute of Culture and Communications. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I ended up, because of my roommates there, they were Micronesian, and they ended up, their countries were just becoming independent. And I ended up working with their, their foreign service uh, in New York when they became members of the United Nations and then helped them uh, establish their um, their missions there and then worked uh, under the ambassador there for a few years. So my original career path was one of really academics and diplomacy. It sounds like through that experience, you, you took a, a liking to being a public servant. Yeah, you know, I mean, I was, during that time, it was a very um, hopeful time for the world. The Cold War just ended. Many countries, or the newly established countries, Federated States of Micronesia, Republic of the Marshall Islands, Republic of Palau just become independent from U.S. colonial rule. They had to, at a hard-fought, you know, independence. I mean, the U.S. was trying to get all kinds of concessions, but they became independent countries and joined the U.N., and they were really the first wave. And then right after that, the breakup of Yugoslavia brought a whole bunch of those Slavic nations in, then Eritrea, and then the breakup of the Soviet Union. So we were... We, when I say that um, I was working for the Micronesian government, you know, we were the first of the newly independent countries. And so I was helping, you know, newly newly established um, diplomats coming in from Kazakhstan or coming in from Georgia or Lithuania or Serbia, coming to the UN and saying, okay, this is how you, back then it was all paper, right? So this is where you get your documents. This is where you deposit your accreditation letters. Here's where you sit on the U.N. floor, those types of things. So, yes, you know, I really developed this idea that everything's possible in this world and we can we could do it. So that was the time that we were developing was then the Rio de Janeiro, the Earth Summit. And out of the Earth Summits in the late or no, mid 90s, I think 94, came a number of environmental treaties. Right. The um, biodiversity treaty, mm-hmm. a treaty on desertification, a whole bunch of others that then set us on the path of where we are today to looking at sustainable development, all of the recycling efforts, all of the reduction of energy use and alternative energies. All of that came from those international conferences. So yeah, it really influenced my trajectory in working in the international arena. But then, you know, Hawaii called me home, right? Mm-hmm. My, my tutu, my grandfather was in Hana and my grandmother was, was there and uh, he was getting older and sick, and he had a stroke. And I, I, you know, I remember this very well. I got the call from my grandmother, so I went to see the ambassador that I worked for, Shiwa George, and I talked to Ambassador George, and I said, you know, I need to return. And he said, you know, he said, look, you're doing the absolute right thing. You're going home to take care of your family. He said, we'll always be here. You know, go home. So I came home to Hawaii and went back to Hana, took care of my grandparents, and then when I was there, you know, started seeing everything happening on Maui, saying, why don't we do some of these sustainable development ideals? You know, we're small. We can deal with energy issues. We can deal with recycling issues. We can deal with growth issues, overpopulation, water issues. And that led to, you know, people asking, saying, well, you should, you have these ideas. Why don't you run for office? So right, I did. right. And that's how I ended up in politics. I love this story that you were able to get some experience with helping other nations and other people. And then at at a point in your life, you brought it back home and you put it to use for the local people, uh, but especially for the people on Maui. Of all the accomplishments in your time as as a senator, as a county council person, what are you most proud of? 
There are a couple of points. You know, there's one that we did on the Maui County Council many, many years ago. We were approving, you know, there's there's a thing called the, um, it's like a universal building code. And every so many years it gets updated. So we were in the process of updating that following the national codes. And I wanted to see traditional Hawaiian structures built again. It was actually illegal in our, in our codes. You couldn't do it. Uh, and people said, well, you know, go in there and you have to put it in experimental housing. So after I looked at it really carefully, I said, all right, when I use the term grass house or grass shack, as many people called it, it set up a certain image in people's minds. So the first thing I did was I changed its name. So I called it indigenous architecture. Mm, okay. And by switching the name, I switched the discussion. And people were intrigued. And they said, indigenous architecture? I said, yeah, look at this. Oh, a grass, a grass shack. I said, no, indigenous architecture. You know, it was used for a long time by our people that withstood hurricanes. There's a specific reason why they were built a certain way. And then I took that and created a new section in the building code, and another chapter that I added on that then legalized indigenous architecture, and we set up a whole code for it. And that went into place, and now all of the Hawaiian structures, indigenous structures you see throughout Hawaii and different places comes off of that. Wow. So I'm very proud of that one pivoting movement that brought back something that would have been lost in Hawaii. A couple others, I mean, moving up maybe to the early 2000s, I was looking back at some of the bills that I did, and there was one where we allowed the Office of Hawaiian Affairs to give grants. So previous to, I think it was 2001, was when the bill passed, uh, OHA was not able to restructure it, right? Um, so we allowed OHA then to give out grants, and so you look at it today, all the grants that OHA is giving out stems from that particular bill that I put in place. So wow. that's something in the middle. And then more recently, you know, I did bills that adopted a large section of the Paris Accords a few years back. Mm -hmm. And when the previous federal administration came to power, remember, mm -hmm. they took the United States out of the Paris Accords. But because we had it as local law, Hawaii stayed in. So our slogan became, we're still in. And Hawaii then participated at all of the UN conferences, the international conferences, and we've developed, you know, our own reporting mechanisms in the international community. And we actually excelled in many of the points in the, in the Paris Accord. So that also then led to another bill that created the Climate Change Commission. And, you know, so that's going to have huge impact going down the line on how we deal with climate change, how we deal with uh, planned retreat, and those types of things. So those are just some of the highlights over the 25 years. Those are incredible highlights. Going back to the allowing OHA to issue grants, I mean, that's affecting people today, affected by the pandemic. Uh, you know, OHA has made grants available to people who need help with their rent. And so that's that's huge. You know, as, as with many occupations where someone is part of a team or at least collaborates with other coworkers towards a goal, many memories and relationships are made. What will you miss most about serving in the state legislature? You know, without a doubt, I'm going to miss my colleagues and, and uh, the staff and all the people that work here so very much. I mean, we've become like a big family. And for the neighbor island senators, you know, we have to have many homes because where else we have to come here and live here for part, part of the year. Mm -hmm. So when people end work, you know, say at 6 in the evening, that's, that's when the Senate ends, you know, a lot of times. Mm -hmm. People will go home and they'll have family and they'll have something to go home to. But the neighbor island senators, we are here. You know, we have nowhere to go, so we always end up in each other's offices. And we've become really close. So I'm going to miss that. I'm going to miss, you know, my Maui colleagues, uh, my Kauai colleagues, my Big Island colleagues, and, of course, my Oahu colleagues. But, you know, that's the nature of this, this work, right? I mean, when I first came to the Senate, they used to have our name engraved on a marble plate, very thick piece of marble, mm -hmm. downstairs in the in the um, chambers, in the Senate chamber. And it used to be engraved in. And then probably early 2000, it switched. It became a marble plate with, you know, the, the plastic peel-off name, the letters. Yeah, yeah. And I always, when I always take new senators there, and I say, take a look at this. This represents the impermanence of our position. That, you know, in a moment, your name is here, and in a moment, it is removed and the next name is put on. And so I always use that as a metaphor to, to train our new senators that this is, uh, this is a impermanent 
passed through. That's the nature of it. And so that's what I recognize is that, you know, my, my 20 years here was a long time, but it was an impermanent pass-through to a space and a, and a place that is um, very dear to me. I know the governor has 30 days to select a person to take your seat. You said in your press... It's pre- 60, but yeah. Oh, is it, oh, it's 60. Okay. You said in your press conference that you'd like to see Linda Coit take your place. Can you share with our listeners what makes her a good choice to represent Senate District 7? Yes, you know, Lynn is, is so committed and has so much passion and so much love for these islands. She's a, a Molokai girl through and through, and she can totally relate to the rural lifestyle and the needs of these districts. And because she's been in the House of Representatives representing half of the senatorial district, which is vast in and of itself, but she already represents the islands of Molokai, island of Lanai, the uninhabited island of Kaho'olawe, and then East Maui from Paia all the way around to Kaupo on the backside. Mm-hmm. So the new part of this district is upcountry Maui and Kula. And she has a big family there, and she spends a lot of time there as well. So I think, I think that Lynn is very well prepared to come to the higher body, come to the Senate, and hit the ground running representing this vast, vast area with many, many different cultures and peoples and uh, belief systems all living together. We worked during the pandemic, Lynn and myself and and Mayor Victorino worked very, very closely to coordinate things like food deliveries, medications going out, uh, shutting down East Maui and, you know, isolating it at the beginning of the pandemic and getting food to Lanai and getting food to Molokai. When Young Brothers was uh, not going to sail. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. We're gonna, we had to talk to all the store owners on Molokai and work out a plan to distribute food that was there within the store so that they wouldn't run out and the people wouldn't run out. So we worked really hard during this extraordinary time, and that built a very strong um, trust and friendship, but it also gave Lynn a deep, deep insight into all of our districts because we're doing similar things with with Rep. Uh, Kyle Yamashita up in the other side of this district. And so we got to see, you know, just how vast and just how, how peculiar different parts of our district are. So I think she is, you know, is the one that's qualified and can knows how to work within our budgetary system to get the things that are needed for our rural districts. It does sound like she does have the, the experience and the network and the roots to do a good job. Some of the recent issues you've been working on include working on solutions for the deer dying off of Molokai and eradicating the little red fire ant in the Hiku. Do you have any updates on where those issues stand? Yeah, so Representative Decoy and I worked very closely with the, the deer issue. I mean, she organized on the ground on Molokai within a matter of days, you know, to deal with this, this um, die-off, right? Mm-hmm. The deer were dying everywhere because they didn't have food and water. Right. And it created a really a public health problem, decaying carcasses everywhere. And I, I worked on the backside. You know, I said, you deal with on-the-ground stuff. Let me deal with figuring out some of the policy stuff. And so by the time she and I got together compared our notes, we decided that we should go to the governor and ask him to do an emergency declaration, but not only for Molokai. It included all of Maui County because we had the same issue in upcountry Maui, east Maui, and to an extent, although much more controlled, on Lanai. Mm-hmm. And because we did so much homework and we prepared everything, when we went to the governor and the attorney general and Department of Agriculture, they agreed and they issued the emergency proclamation, which then allowed some monies to come in. It also allowed for us to deal with creating the barriers in Molokai, basically grading certain areas so that there's a big buffer zone that deer wouldn't come into. There's been some talk in media circles about the legislature potentially calling for a special session to address getting more access to or more control of CARES funding. Do you have any update on that? Yes. So, you know, we've, we've passed House Bill 200, which is a big $28 billion budget, and it's a huge amount of money for the operating of the state of Hawaii for the next two years. But we also know that the federal monies that came in, the $1.6 billion, the federal government hasn't issued its guidance on how it should be used. Mm-hmm. So we had to give it, for lack of a better term, the best guess that we could to put it in different areas. And I'm 
pretty sure that when the guidance comes out in mid mid May, there's going to have to be some changes to the budget. So if the changes are on the operating side, you know, in other words, the restrictions or how the monies can be used affects the operating side. It would be more dire than if it is on the capital improvement side. But all that to say is that well, and we also we also need to wait for Congress to pass the infrastructure bill to see what's in there, right? Because yeah. then we'd have to plug it into the budget. So all of those factors, um, I would think that there will be a special session sooner than later, and there may be a few during the next year, just to make sure that you know we remain in compliance with federal guidelines and we spend the money correctly. And then my last question, experienced and knowledgeable public representatives like yourself who make a difference are so valuable to our state. Is there any chance, any hope that you'll recover and return to public office someday? You know what? That's not foreclosed. I mean, maybe. We don't know. Nothing is certain, right, in life. And so we don't know if there's a cure for this or if there's some, you know, long-term treatment. But, you know, to be really frank, I'm at peace with this decision. I feel good about it. And, you know, I also, in this decision, I'm also encouraging a lot of young people to step forward. I think that's where the future lies. And and I'm asking some really young people in in this district to step forward, to think about standing for office. And so, you know, if the possibility comes, you know, maybe, but perhaps it's best to let the next generation come in and offer them guidance and help them through, but let them grow into this this position and represent Hawaii in, in the way that this next generation sees it. That was retiring State Senator Jay Kalani English talking with R. Russell Subiono. Governor David Ige will appoint the senator's replacement to serve the remainder of his term. And at last check, the governor is waiting on the Democratic Party of Hawaii for a list of candidates to fill that District 7 seat. Support for HPR comes from Friends of the Library of Hawaii's new store, Village Books and Music at Ward. Open Tuesday to Sunday through May. Walk-ins welcome or reservations at friendsofthelibraryofhawaii.org slash villagebooks. The news and music you hear on HPR are supported in part by nearly 200 local organizations that choose to reinforce their brand with us. Mahalo to Kumu Kahua Theater, Nico's Restaurants, and Hanahaoli School. They believe just as you do in the power of public radio. See a full list of our underwriters at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Legacy of Life Hawaii, dedicated to saving and enhancing lives through organ and tissue recovery, recognizing April as National Donate Life Month. Organ donor registration at legacyoflifehawaii.org. Dr. Janet Berriman is the Kauai District Officer for the Department of Health. We reached out to get a sense as to how the community is responding now that the CDC has lifted the pause on the Johnson & Johnson vaccines. She says a check this morning with community partners found that there is still strong interest in the vaccine that offers one and done, even with a warning about the rare clotting side effect. So we rolled out the vaccine with several quite large pods when it first became available. So overall, we've given just over about 3,000 doses of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. We were really fortunate that we didn't have to cancel any scheduled clinics when the pause was put in place. And we do have some doses on hand. We don't have enough on hand that we're going to schedule another large pod like that. Instead, what we're doing is sharing our Johnson & Johnson vaccine with our other vaccinating partners so our community clinics and the hospitals, and they're each going to roll it out as it works with them in in their scheduling and their output. So for right now, it's small numbers, but it is available for people who are interested in that vaccine. Are people responding, or is there still the hesitancy there? So on Kauai and the other neighbor islands, we opened up to 16 and older on April 5th, and we certainly saw an initial bump up in people who hadn't previously been eligible, who had been eager to be vaccinated and came in to be vaccinated. But like we're seeing in the rest of the state and nationwide, you know, we've vaccinated about half of the population. And the second half is the half that 
doesn't feel the same sense of urgency as that first half. So we're certainly not seeing a stop in people wanting to get their vaccines, but we're not seeing the very, very high levels of demand that we saw in the first few months. It's still steady. We have, as you probably know, had an uptick in cases of COVID-19 here on Kauai, which we hadn't seen for many months. And that seems to be uh, driving a little bit of an uptick in demand for vaccine as well. Are you in a situation where you have had to waste some doses? I mean, you know, that you just didn't have enough people and you had uh, these doses already open? The vials have different numbers of vaccines in them, depending on which kind it is. So there's the occasional occurrence where, say, you open a 10-dose vial and you only have eight people to vaccinate. So far, we've pretty much been successful in finding people to, t- to get those last doses because there isn't any waiting list now for vaccine appointments and no reason for people to delay, it's a little bit harder to find people who are interested who haven't already made their appointment or come in. But we've been able to do it. So the number of wasted doses has been a tiny handful. It's, it's not a major problem. Are you seeing people show up for the second appointment if they had the Moderna or the Pfizer shot? Yes, we're seeing good, good uh, show rate, as we say, for, for the second doses. We haven't seen any, any real drop-off in that. So what's your big concern going forward? I mean, I know this week we heard, sadly, about the young child who mm-hmm. uh, traveled from the mainland. And, and that case was on Oahu. I just want to be clear mm-hmm. because I think people expect me to talk about Kauai. You know, we are really in a race nationally and locally between the vaccine and the much, much more transmissible variants of the virus. And we know that those variants are predominant on the mainland and increasingly so in Hawaii. And on Kauai, where we've been relatively spared up until this time, we do know that we've had both the B1429, which is the California variant, and the B117, which is the UK variant. Both of those have been detected here. With our recent increase in cases, we don't yet have the genomic sequencing results, but we're seeing a lot of household transmission and a lot of transmission of disease to close contacts in workplaces and other social settings. So we really do expect that we're likely to see a significant impact, that we are seeing a significant impact of the variants here. So my main concern is whether we can get enough people vaccinated quickly enough to quell the spread of the disease and keep things under control so that we can continue traveling ourselves, welcoming visitors, and having the the more vibrant economy that everybody is desperately eager to have. There's a lot in the news about long haulers, Senator Kalani English, you know, stepping down because of some issues. What can you tell us about what you're seeing on Kauai, what you're hearing about? Our numbers on Kauai have been so small, I don't have any specific data about long-haul cases here. But I do think that these long COVID cases really speak to the value of being vaccinated. There are lots of different reasons that people might choose to be vaccinated. Some of them are about your own personal health. Some are about other people's health. And some are about, you know, what you can, the kinds of activities you can do safely. But certainly we know that long COVID is something that can happen to young people as well as old people. And it also can happen to people who've had very mild disease when they were acutely infected and then go on to have these long-term effects. So people who may feel like they're invulnerable or, oh, it will just be a mild disease, really need to be aware that this is still a disease that we're learning a lot about. And this long COVID is a very sobering uh, potential impact for people of all ages and all severity of disease. In my mind, it's another reason to be vaccinated. And, you know, we are hearing more about the changes with CDC on mask wearing outside. Anything you want Mm -hmm. to add there? No, I think that the basic guidelines are very similar to what's been in place at the statewide level, which is that if you are, you know, active outdoors just with your household members, that mask wearing is not needed. But that if you're outside, with in crowds of people, even if you're vaccinated, you should still be wearing a mask. And we're we're not yet at whatever herd immunity is going to be, whether that turns out to be 80% of the population or 85% of the population, where we would could really have confidence that most of the people around us were also vaccinated and let down our guard. So until we're there, I think it's really prudent, uh, when especially when we're in crowded places, even outside, to continue wearing masks. That was Kauai District Officer for the Health Department, Dr. Janet Berriman. She believes that there may be different reasons why people may not be in a rush to get vaccinated. 
She says the state will continue to make sure that the vaccines are available for those who do want to get the shots that offer protection from severe COVID symptoms. Our reality check today from Honolulu Civil Beat has to do with rail and a story that has raised a lot of eyebrows. Politics and opinion editor Chad Blair joins us this morning. Hi, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. So this is a story uh, written up by Marcel Henri, your transportation reporter. Right. I'm, I'm covering for him today, but this story is uh, easy to talk about. It is a talker all over uh, the city and county, uh, the idea that Colleen Honabusa uh, has been hired by Hart, the Honolulu Authority for Rapid Transportation, uh, to be an outside consultant, and it's not a cheap fee. It <laughs> works out to a, a value of about two hundred and sixteen thousand dollars. If for some reason, by the way, Honabusa's contract is extended by Hart, that works out to nearly a million dollars over six years. And uh, we can talk about what she was hired for. What I think the context is important to understand is that. Hart recently laid off nearly half of its staff, right? right? Really, it was a purge under the new executive director, uh, Lori Kahiki, coming in after Andrew Robinson. And if she, she did that to eliminate uh, redundancies and, and, and efficiencies and so forth. And certainly cost savings would be something to consider as well. But that's uh, it got a lot of people, still a lot of people talking about the hiring of Hanabusa to uh, to be a liaison uh, for Hart. Yeah, you know, I've heard concern uh, about, I think I think it's a whole section of quality control. The folks were let go, uh, and they're thinking, well, I think you might still need some people to make sure that these contracts <laughs> are, uh, you know, written up like they're supposed to be. But uh, And I think when we even asked uh, Lori Kaikina about, you know, some of those cuts, you know, uh, some of those people have institutional memory, and mm. there isn't, you know, anybody on that board right now that goes back. Uh, unless, of course, now if you if you talk about Colleen Hanabusa as her new, you know, the new consultant. I mean, remember she uh, she was a former uh, chair uh, of right. Hart, uh, and it, that was a volunteer position, of course. But she certainly knows the the rail board well. Uh, the specific duties are to help development and and implement. A short and long-term funding strategies, the key word there being funding. I suppose funding and strategies are key words here. Uh, specifically, she'll be a liaison with uh, city and county leaders as well as legislative leaders. What's caught a lot of people's eyes is that the qualifications uh, by heart were written fairly narrow. Some might say tailor-made uh, to fit Hanabusa. You have to have a law degree, 20 years practicing law, 10 years in state and county government involving legislation and policy making, and also five years of federal government. Well, guess what? Hanabusa is, in fact, a longtime labor attorney. She was the a longtime state senator, including state senate president, right? Mm -hmm. She also served in Congress twice uh, and has run unsuccessfully uh, for uh, city mayor for the uh, U.S. Senate and for governor of Hawaii. But she's clearly a very experienced person. But uh, she uh, appears to be the only one who applied for the job and got it. And that has some people saying, well, wait a minute, you know, is, is politics somehow involved? We should stress, by the way, this is Hart's hiring. This is not the city and county. This is not Mayor Blangiardi. This is from the rail agency. Yes, and, you know, I just did a quick scan of the comments uh, from your uh, readers. And, yeah, <laughs> yes. they are not happy. They just, yeah, are wondering about this sweetheart deal. And, uh, yeah, not happy. <laughs> Yeah, and and you should see the ones we've deleted. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but but there, to to her credit, uh, there are people that say, look, in many ways, she's exactly the right person to hire. As you mentioned, the institutional memory. She certainly, as a skilled lawyer, knows the insights and outsides of of, of government operations. And while one of the heart members a, a couple of months ago said, look, we're you know we're not looking to have more lobbying going on. That's not a priority. On the other hand, there definitely are efforts to get more funding, and to do that, you need to have someone, frankly, 
who can be a lobbyist. I mean, imagine if Hart has, or city leaders have to go back to the legislature and say, look, we're going to need more money to finish rail or go to the federal government. Uh, Hanabusa in that way might be well suited for this position. Yes. I mean, she certainly does have the institutional memory and has been around the block more than a few times, you know, in these uh, circles, whether it's federal government uh, and, uh, you know, and she knows her way around the, the, the city and the state as well. So you've got to be able to to get along with everybody and, and uh, get the outcome that you want at the end of the day. Uh, by the way, no comment from uh, Colleen Hanabusa in Marcel's story, but I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot from her in the days ahead. Yes. All right. Well, thanks so much, Chad. <laughs> sure, Catherine. That was Civil Beat editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. To read Marcel on Raceville's story, visit civilbeat.org. The visitor industry is looking brighter for the Garden Isle as more of Kauai's community gets vaccinated and as the vaccine passport system gets rolled out in a couple of weeks. We talked to General Manager Jim Brayman of the Cliffs at Princeville, a property on the North End. We wondered how Kauai is faring with the shortage in rental cars that is challenging the tourist comeback. It's something that we've got to be proactive with. From what I understand, and this is not from any, any confirmed source, but from what I understand is when COVID hit and it was prolonged. Many of the rental cars downsized their fleet, and now they're not able to get cars back quickly. And I'm sure that's twofold. I mean, it's just the logistics of getting cars to Kauai. And then also, I hear stories about manufacturing being slow and behind. Being able to get the number of cars that they need is probably an issue as well. What are your bookings looking like for the summer? Very strong, 90-plus percent occupancy. Wow. Um, and so what we're doing, out of fear that people will cancel because they can't get a rental car is we're proactively reaching out to our guests and helping them book them sooner than they might to ensure that they've got one while they're here. I don't know if uh, anyone's doing the fly drive package kind of thing, you know, with the hotels. Is that being offered there on your island? We are not at the cliffs. I don't know about any other resorts. What's your sense of the comeback? I would say I'm cautiously optimistic. It looks very good, but as you know, Kauai has taken this very seriously, and Mayor Kalkami has shown before that he's not adverse to pulling the plug if cases go up at a, at a rate that's more than we can tolerate. done that before, and so we're all real hopeful that we do this safely and get people welcomed back to Kauai without having a spike in cases. Well, there on Kauai, there have been some hotels that have had, uh, some resorts that have had bubbles. Just to show the world that, look, it can be done, we can make this happen if we're smart about it. And you folks have been able to keep your numbers down there on Kauai. Yes, thankfully we have. We've been very successful at it. And, you know, a lot of people have sacrificed a lot to make that happen. And so there's very much a feeling that while we're as excited as we are to, to reopen and have things get back to some semblance of normal, don't want to do it in any way, shape, or form that's going to risk making somebody sick just to rent a hotel room. So we want to make sure that we do it safely. And, you know, we were a resort bubble. We were among the first resort bubbles on the island uh, beginning last September. And through that process, we put close to 1,200 people through the process of quarantining in the bubble with us. And not one single person turned positive. And we didn't have one single person uh, try and run, break quarantine, or anything like that. They Everybody knew what they were getting into and cooperated and had their tests and did what they were supposed to do, and we didn't have any problems with that at all. So that shows me that it very much can be done. Uh, you just have to put forth the extra effort to make sure you follow the protocols. What are your thoughts on this vaccine passport? I mean, I know they're opening it up for the uh, residents here in yeah. Hawaii first. I think that it, it's a great first step for us moving in that direction. And it seems like throughout this whole process, you know, it's been a moving target. But lately, the last few months, it seems like each, each movement is, is a step in a better direction. And I think this is it. And I, I applaud the idea of taking it in a phased approach to do inner island first. And as I heard the governor say, work out the kinks in the system and then open it up to the mainland. By that time, we'll have the system working smoothly and our ducks in a row and be ready to welcome larger numbers. So how have you been able to ramp up there at your facility? Are all your workers uh, back on the job? Yes. We have 75 employees and all but two 
are back. The key was plan for it, and we're well positioned with all of our protocols in place and all of our communication to guests holding reservations to say, it looks like this is when it's going to happen. It looks like this is what you're going to need to do when you come during this period and make them comfortable with the process that it is navigable and possible to be able to come. And that served us very well. The resort bubble worked well. We were 70, 80% occupancy through much of that period. And then once they opened with the vaccine passport, we quickly topped 80. I credit my team my concierge and my reservation team especially with just being proactive with our guests and letting them know what to expect and guiding them through that process, sending them the forms they would need, making sure they understood what they were going to have to do, and it worked very well. And how are your restaurants doing on property? We don't have a restaurant on property. Oh, you don't? We, okay. Uh, no, we don't, but we have food trucks that come three or four days a week, and that works very well. And that served us very well through the whole COVID process because it was open air and they were able to follow their own protocols and with them being inside the truck and you know the guests being outside and then taking it back to their room to eat, that allowed us to service them during that time. And then we had some small companies that popped up that started grocery delivery service. And I mean, at one time we even had wine delivery service and, and things like that. So it really was a great time to be here. Did you have any, I don't know, on-site vaccine clinics there, or were there enough community uh, vaccine clinics to accommodate your hotel workers? There was plenty of community, and what we did is we encouraged all of our staff to take it, but obviously that's a personal choice. Most all of them did, uh, but we did give them paid time off to be able to go get their vaccine. The summer then looks good? Looks very good. It looks like there's really going to be no shoulder season for Kauai this year, you know, the typical slowdown period, maybe right before the holidays or something like that. I think we're going to be pretty consistently busy all the way through. Now then the message out there, though, for folks who are contemplating a trip over to Kauai at this point with the rent-a-car situation? Just be proactive and get your car rented sooner than later. You know, a lot of people will book their reservations several months in advance and then wait till the last couple of weeks thinking they're going to shop for a deal on the cars. I would recommend don't do that now. I would say the same thing with all the islands. I understand it's happening Maui, Big Island, and uh, Oahu as well. And have you gotten any word as to, you know, when we might see additions to the fleet, the rental car fleet? Not through any official source, but the general consensus is that it, we won't be back to the same number of rental cars by the end of the year. This session, there was lots of hand-wringing over the Hawaii Tourism Authority's budget and, you know, what they might be uh, doing down the road. I mean, how are you looking at that, just being part of the Kauai Visitors Bureau? Well, I sure hope that they don't make the decision to cut their funds that drastically if they cut them at all. There's a lot of good work that gets done from that. And after coming out of COVID, I I struggle to see the wisdom of cutting the budget of the state's number one economic driver and the fallout that would come from that. You know, we've already lost lots of small businesses and, you know, a lot of larger businesses are going out as well. And to now be at a point where we're looking to be able to get back on track and save those that were able to cling to life during this time or were uh, thinking that they were going to maybe make a comeback if they did close, then to cut marketing funds now or for Hawaiiana events or those sorts of things is just something beyond me. I don't, I don't understand that. I, I do understand that we need to balance our budget and the state lost lots of revenue, primarily through TAT taxes and things like that. But to cut marketing funds at a time when we're trying to rebound, this goes against all business. That was Jim Brayman, general manager of the Cliffs at Princeville on the island of Kauai, talking about the upcoming bookings. He says, you know, the island is open for business. It has been able to mount the challenges posed by the recent landslides and flooding and as the visitor industry has not fully rebounded, there are not the large crowds as there were in the past. So it's a good time on Kauai now.
Support for HPR comes from Beach Tree Restaurant on the Oceanfront at Four Seasons Resort Hualalai, serving lunch and dinner, featuring Italian family-style Sunday suppers with local catch specials, house-made pasta, and Nana's classic tiramisu. Aloha, this is Dave Lawrence, host of HPR's All Things Considered. We regularly check in with world-renowned musicians like Carlos Santana, Linda Ronstadt, and many others in a series called Off the Road. We get into some classic storytelling and exclusive musical performances, too. Catch Off the Road Friday afternoons during ATC or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. For info, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to enjoy the new museum-wide exhibition Joyful Return on Friday and Saturday evenings until 9 p.m. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. Before there were unions representing educators, school administrators, and university faculty, it was each island onto its own, such as the history of the Hawaii Education Association, which marks its centennial this year. It was the precursor of the Hawaii State Teachers Association, units in the Hawaii Government Employees Association, and the University of Hawaii Professional Assembly. To take us back to the story of the early days, we connected with June Motokawa, former uh, head of HSTA, the union which represents teachers in our public schools. I love our history. You know, the staff and I were going through this box that was in storage, and we found the minutes to a meeting of educators from 1912. <laughs> wow. What a treasure. And the handwriting was so precise and beautiful. <laughs> uh, lovely penmanship. Yes, yes. Why was this form? What was the genesis? Well, would you believe that the first teachers' union started in 1915? Before that, though, there were groups of educators looking and talking to each other about the necessity of the working conditions needing to be improved and the salaries of teachers needing to be higher. And in 1921, exactly when we were born, these different units had gone to the legislature. All the different so-called unions from the different islands, Hilo Union being the very first and oldest one, went into the legislature to seek a salary increase and better working conditions. The then chair said, you know, instead of you all coming at separate times with different kinds of numbers, come in together. And ah. that's when they decided to unite as one. So that started the Hawaii Education Association. They started like a union, you know, representing educators at the legislature, then legislature. There was a territory by that time. So really, then, those early days were about education justice for the teachers, for the educators. Yes, yes. Well ahead of their time <laughs> in organizing. In 1970, there was a con-con just before that where the HEA was first to testify about the necessity of unionizing then in 1970, HSTA was born, and Unit 6 of HGEA, and UPA. UPA was called something else. I don't recall the name then. But the three unions were born then, 70, 70, 71. So would it be accurate to say then that the HEA was kind of like a, what, a professional group first? Well, they were sort of like a union representing teachers, and as the bargaining units were born from Chapter 89 in 1968-69. Then it had to take a different role and see what their role was going to be. So they concentrated more on the profession, the profession of teaching. That's basically professional development, providing some workshops. They also had travel programs for teachers and administrators, because administrators are part of HEA, as well as some college professors. So 1921 to 1970, you know, HEA was the representative and had various kinds of programs to support teachers 
and also lobbied and presented testimony for teachers' salaries and working conditions. What does the organization do today? Today we're basically targeting professional development. We have high school scholarships for children and grandchildren of our HEA members. We also are beginning a scholarship for those high school students in the education pathway in their high school. We have scholarships for teachers who are in the colleges of education throughout the nation. We have also really nice scholarships for student teachers and then some nice, very nice scholarships for teachers who are in service for conferences. I guess as you reflect back on the, on the centennial and the early beginnings. With this pandemic, it's even more magnified the need for our teachers to receive support outside of salaries and working conditions, which is a great thing for them, of course. But when we had, early in February, HEA did a focus group the whole month of February for three nights every single week. And then we also had a survey, community survey, as well as educators participating in it. And what we found was the vast need among our teachers, especially, to communicate with each other. Their need is to talk story with their colleagues, to to get information about what someone else may be doing that could be helpful for them. They also talked about the need for professional development. And I do sit on the HSTA Foundation for Educators, which is also 501c3, where we focus mostly on professional development per the needs of teachers. And right now the needs are basically in the area of technology and cultural diversity. HEA, though, is helping by working right now. Right now we're looking at and planning for some way to connect our teachers because that was the greatest need that we heard. Kauai has something called a teacher's kumu's cupboard where they have a lot of supplies where teachers can go and take for free what they need for their classroom. And so we're talking about something like that and enhancing that particular idea. We're looking at going into the schools and maybe offering some ways of um, connecting with each other. There's almost a desperation for that among the teachers. Earlier this week, we talked to the authors of a brief on education inequalities. 90 educators signed on to that report. The concern they had was, you know, we need to focus on qualified teachers in the classroom and not throw just lots of money at technology and remote learning going forward. Absolutely. You know, we, we wrestled with the fact that there are tremendous systems issues and challenges, and we know that it's hard for us to take care of some of those issues uh, that we look at HSTA and some other organizations to to try to intervene and work with the system to change the system. We will work through individual teachers and groups of teachers and administrators to connect and come up with ideas and implement that, them as a 501c3. So we're very careful about not getting ourselves too involved with the legislature and the lobbying aspect of our organization. You know, throughout the years, you know, there have been uh, issues surrounding the hiring pool, whether enough was being done to make sure that the folks that were hired represented, you know, the, the children in the classroom. I think at the time there was a disparity. There were a lot of Japanese teachers being hired, but a lot of let's say, qualified Filipino teachers, you know, were being passed over. And do you know where we're at on that? That has not come up for us. It'd be interesting for us to know. I remember those days. I was still very much involved with HSTA and Amy Agbayani. (laughs) Yes. And and at one time, I think we used to also provide housing for teachers Mm -hmm. way back when. You know, now we do what bonuses for for those communities or schools in, in the rural areas where maybe mm. recruitment is 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 a tougher nut to crack 
Yeah, we've always been on top of the issue when I was at HSTA, and I know there's a private kind of firm, not sure, that was offering a couple, three years ago, a way for teacher housing. During those early years, pre-statehood and early statehood, we did have teacher housing, Lanai, Big Island, Molokai. I'm just trying to think of what are the carrots that we need to dangle out there in order to attract more teachers uh, into the system when we have, you know, a shortage. That's why we're in the high schools, and our plan before COVID was to go into the middle school and even elementary and begin on career days, very small ways to present education as a pathway. Aha, uh-huh. planting the seed early. Yes, yes. So okay. we do have tentative plans and which is on hold because we don't we couldn't go into the schools or actually work with children. Do you want to talk about what the organization has planned for the centennial? We are planning for a big October celebration. It seems like at this time still virtual. We'll see how it goes. Right now, we're looking at receiving testimonials from teachers and community members who may have been a teacher that impacted their lives today. And so far, we've been very fortunate. There are people who are very interested in wanting to share their stories about a teacher. Do you have a story about a teacher you'd like to share? We have been talking with June Motokawa of the Hawaii Education Association, which celebrates its 100th anniversary. It was a precursor to the units and the public sector unions, which represent educators. We should note that Teacher Appreciation Week is just around the corner. So in anticipation, we invite our listeners to give a shout out to their favorite teacher. You can call our talk back line, 808-792-8217, and record your thoughts, record your memories. Give a mahalo to a teacher who you appreciate. That is it for today. Up tomorrow, Noe Tanagawa will sit in for this Aloha Friday to take you into the weekend. Give us some feedback. Got questions about vaccines or anything else you may have heard of? Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Connect with Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.